Welcome to In Conversation, brought to you by Fine Music Sydney. In each episode, our host, Christopher Waterhouse, speaks to one of the important figures who make up Australia's artistic landscape. Over the course of the programme, you'll hear all about our guests' life, work and interests, along with a number of musical pieces of their choice. The following conversation was first broadcast in January 2020. Hello, welcome to In Conversation. I'm Christopher Waterhouse. The Honourable Michael Kirby is an international jurist, educator and former judge. He served as Justice of the High Court of Australia from 1996 to 2009. Widely recognised for his international work for human rights, which has earned him over the years a number of awards, including the Australian Human Rights Medal, Laureate of the UNESCO Prize for Human Rights Education and as co-winner of the Gruber Justice Prize. He's honorary professor at 12 Australian and overseas universities. For Michael Kirby, there is no such thing as retirement. He selected a work from Bach's St John Passion to begin today. This is the tenor aria Evega. Uh-huh. 
You're listening to In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. The tenor aria from the St John Passion, Ervega, Consider How His Blood Stained Back, selected by my special guest today, Michael Kirby. Michael, listening to that uh, brings back all sorts of memories, I'm sure. Yes, it uh, certainly does. Memories of when I first heard the St John Passion. Uh, I was actually a very bad student troublemaker in those days and I was over in Perth and I was in the meeting of the National Union of Australian University Students and I crept out and went to the um, big hall of the university there and they were practising for the St John Passion and I'd never heard it, I'd never knew it and I, uh, even now I feel very emotional to remember when I first heard The Passion of St John. And I recently read how Bernstein, when he first heard The Passion, uh, though he himself was a Jew, and we have to say the St John Passion, when we listen to it with today's ears, sounds a rather anti-Semitic, a bit like Merchant of Venice. We were a bit embarrassed about some of it. But anyway, I heard this and I was transfixed. And then I flew back to Sydney and the following week the ABC had actually recorded the performance in the Winthrop Hall in Western Australia, University of Western Australia and it was played and my father, who had a little tape recorder, he recorded it and so my, I introduced it to my brothers and my sister and my family and we all listened to this magical music and... It's such so emotional. It's it's really powerful stuff. You know, looking back on it, to introduce children to the story of Jesus and of his suffering and Ervega, consider uh, his suffering for our sins. You know, it's it's a somewhat gruesome way of uh, conveying instructions, but the under, underlying message, I suppose, is that Christ has suffered for our sins uh, and that this is, this is um, a suffering which we should respect, honour and learn from and learn the good things about Christianity that we're a little bit further down the track when we get a bit past their vega. Indeed. And there's so much, of course, about that work. It's not sickly sweet. It's discordant. It's, it's passionate. It's, it's actually at times quite disturbing to listen to in the way that it moves you. Very dramatic, yes. It's such a dramatic thing. Uh, I, whenever I, I'm overseas and it's around Easter time, I always go searching for a performance and I saw it in, um, I think it's called Holy Trinity near Wall Street. In It's an old British colonial church, a wonderful church, and they had a marvellous performance of it. But the notes to the performance gave me an insight that I hadn't experienced sufficiently before and that was of how with today's ears uh, it, it does seem rather anti-Semitic, you know, the, the Jews are the, the killers of Christ and, uh, and um, that was an aspect. And then I saw it uh, perform once in the Anglican Cathedral in uh, Hong Kong and it was performed where the leading... Uh, soloists were uh, Chinese and that was 
that was also very moving to see on the very edge of mighty China. Here was this church which was performing this magnificent work of my religion and wonderful performers of really top flight ability and bringing home this uh, drama to a packed cathedral. It, it was it was wonderful and uh, it's something special if you've had A, an upbringing in Christianity and B, a teaching or you have it naturally in your family, the German language because it's it's just something so very Lutheran. It's very Lutheran music <laughs> and uh, and I was very lucky to have that that uh, introduction to J.S. Bach and, uh, and to really get the drama of it uh, and to appreciate it because I could really follow the German of it and then appreciate the wonderful singing and, uh, and uh, the drama. It's just a, a wonderful piece of music and it, it's the core of my, my love of music, cantatas and the passions of J.S. Bach. You mentioned that uh, you could recognise the German. You learned German at school, presumably, did you? Yes, I had a wonderful German teacher, Ron Horan, at Fort Street High School. Unlike my French teachers, who really taught me uh, to read French very with, with accomplishment, Ron Horan taught the group of students, all of whom got maximum passes in the leaving certificate in 1955. We were all bright little cookies in the public school system and um, all went on to become professors and judges and so on. But he taught us to speak it. So I I really got what he said, you've got to get a Sprachgefühl, you've got to get the feeling for the language. And... Uh, and so I did. And when I later met my partner, Johan, when I first met him, the very first night I met him, I thought he was German. Uh, he looked German and he, he, I, he, his accent sounded German, but he was from the Netherlands. And when I presumed to think he was a German, I'm afraid with all... Didn't go down very well. It wasn't a, a good uh, first... <laughs> first uh, opening uh, to our conversation. That was 51 years ago this year, wasn't it, that you met? Yeah. Yes, 51, 51 years and uh, 51 uh, really wonderful and much blessed years. Mm. I dare say you've, you've shared a love of, of language and music together over much of that time. Yes, but it wasn't the German language. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, when, it, when I started to try to learn to speak Netherlands, uh, in the end, he said, "Police, police! Uh, you speak Netherlands like a, a German, and uh, and we'd we'd rather hear you in English." And so I never, I've never really learned Netherlands. And um, and when I want to try and explain something um, privately, or so others won't understand, I speak to him in German. Of course, he can understand immediately. And whenever I can't find a word in Netherlands, I give it to him in German, and he knows immediately what the what the word I'm searching for is. You mentioned Fort Street School a moment ago. Let me just briefly take you back there. Was it at school that you first became aware of a love or a, a developing love of, of the law? 
Well, the school had a very strong tradition. Apart from Sydney Grammar School, Fort Street has the greatest number of justices of the High Court of any school in Australia. It's quite the claim. It had a big emphasis on uh, drama, play day, debating, uh, visits by judges... And so we were sort of encouraged, if we were not of the mathematical scientific stream, then we were encouraged to think, well, maybe that's something that I should think of. And I certainly got my idea to go into the law and try to eventually become a judge from my time at Fort Street High, yes. Did all your siblings go to the same schools? Your brother went into the law too, didn't he? Yes, uh, my brother David, who became a judge of the Supreme Court. My brother Donald didn't go to Fort Street, but he went to public schools. My sister went to public schools. We all started our education at North Strathfield Public School. Actually, the very first kindergarten was in the church hall of St Andrew's Anglican Church, which is still there on the corner of Concord Road and Parramatta Road in Strathfield. Uh, It's now substantially a Korean-Australian church as is the Wesley Methodist Church, which was at the top of the hill of the street in which we were growing up. But um, that itself is a bit of an irony because of my work in recent years for the United Nations Human Rights Council on human rights abuses in North Korea. And I've had quite a bit to do with the Korean communities overseas and in Australia. But uh, They were then ordinary old Sydney parishes of the Anglican Church with a very fine minister, Mr Dillon, the Reverend C.W. Dillon, Cecil Dillon. And I can say that growing up in that church, he never rabbited on about uh, sex in the bedroom or anything like that. He was more interested. He'd been a padre in the Second World War and his interest was making sure that we never had another war, that we, we'd had two big wars, the flags of the of Britain and Australia were on the altar, uh, but he was, not, um, he was not a man of war or anger. He was a man of love and peace, and that was the message of Christianity that I at least got in the Sydney Diocese in those days. Mm. Was music much of a part of, of your life? Yes, it wasn't a part that I took a lot of participation in. I sang in the choir at St Andrew's Church, but unfortunately I kept fainting. Uh, I still have low blood pressure and you're prone to faint. And uh, in the end, Mr Dillon very politely and rather ashamedly said, Michael, you have a beautiful voice, beautiful voice, but... It's very disruptive to the service when you are carried out in the middle of it because you fainted again. So thank you, but no thank you. And so I, I didn't go on uh, in in the choir. But in the primary school at North Strathfield Public School, they we had every every week we had broadcasts by H. D. Black, who was talking to us about Australia and the world. But also there were these broadcasts by the ABC, the wonderful ABC that gave us the teaching of music in schools. And they taught us to sing songs and we were encouraged to sing songs. And part of our education was singing songs. Now, most of the songs were English songs 
the ash grove, the ash grove, how graceful, how plainly it is seeking the wind through its something or other brings uh, language to me. Um, but there were also uh, songs of Schubert, George the Blacksmith, and um, that is a, one of the leader cycles of, uh, of Schubert, and Terence Hunt would sing it in English, and we would have to join in and sing this wonderful music of Schubert, and that was sort of getting into your mind to sing together as children, which is an important thing. I was getting it at church, but a lot of people didn't go to church, and this was a secular school. But then along came um, a hymn. It was very unusual in a public school because the core of the Education Act in across Australia, in, in all of the colonies and then the states, was the schools were free, compulsory and secular. There were no hymns really in, in, in the singing. But then there was this one exception and this exception was a very Wesleyan-sounding hymn because it was very strong, but it was not about Christ. There was no mention of Christ at all in this hymn. And later I learned it was written by Josiah Simon, who was a very considerable hymn writer, but uh, he was a bit suspect because he didn't put enough Christ into his hymns. And uh, this hymn was... These things shall be, and it's it's such a stirring, uh, wonderful hymn. I, I I can sing it long and often do, but I won't today. <laughs> now you, the tune that you recognise and remember so well, we've had all sorts of fun trying to track down a recording of it. As you know, we have found a recording of the tune, which we'll play now, but. We can't, for the life of us round here, find a version that has both words and music. So let's have a listen to the tune for a moment and then have a little look at some of the words. This is the tune, then, called Simeon by Samuel Stanley. listening to In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. It's certainly a very stirring tune. I can see why, you know, it sticks in your mind and in your heart all these years later. Yes, uh, and I think the reason why it slipped through the secular <laughs> criteria of uh, what I was often told by outsiders was the biggest bureaucracy outside the Soviet Union, namely the New South Wales Education Department. <laughs> it slipped through because it had a very strong insistence on rationality. Mm -hmm. These things shall be 
a loftier race than e'er the world hath known shall rise with flame of freedom in their souls and light of knowledge in their eyes. Light of knowledge in their eyes. And this, this was a saying that was written in the 19th century, so in the midst of Britain's empire at its highest, here was somebody saying, we're going to get loftier uh, people and uh, loftier than we've ever known. They'll have a flame of freedom in their souls and they'll have the light of knowledge in their eyes of science of the idea of the twenty of the nineteenth century, and um, it was a very good message for young children at at a public school to to have that, and it was, as you say, a very stirring tune. I looked Josiah Simon up, uh, and he, uh, from what one reads, uh, it seems that he almost certainly was gay. And, of course, back in the 19th century, that would not have been a good career move for somebody who was into writing church music and involved with the church. But um, you, when you read the, the words of the hymn, it's um, they're words which are words of rationality and of kindness. They shall be gentle, brave and strong, to spill no drop of blood but dare... All that may plant man's lordship firm on earth and fire and sea and air. So gentle, brave and strong. Not, not bad words to give to kids in, in school and, and not glorying in empire and, and uh, triumph of man over man and of races over races, but to be gentle, brave and strong. And that was a good, a good message in a hymn and I've never forgotten it. Let me take you to that line and light of knowledge in their eyes, the last line of the first verse. You seem to have that light of, of knowledge in your eyes and certainly a hunger for knowledge as you went through school and then off to university. When, when did you realise that, uh, that that passion for academia uh, was, was sort of leading you through? I, well, I was encouraged. You know, you know I, the, the education system picked me up and I got on the train and I was encouraged. I was encouraged by my parents, but not in a way that was aggressive about it, but just to, to do my best. But at school, I was encouraged to do my very best. And I, I went to a, an opportunity school, which is the system we have in New South Wales, where you get a, a certain group in the local public school go off to the district so-called opportunity C class. And there we were with other children who had been similarly selected. And um, it was then from there I went to the Fort Street High School. But they never forgot that they were public schools and that we were all equal. And I, I, I have very clear memories of children in those years immediately after the Second World War coming to school barefooted. And I thought to myself, you know, this is a trick of your imagination, your, your desire uh, for humble origins has sort of carried you away with this. But then I saw recently a photo of uh, my school because they did a photo every year and there were children in the front row who were f feet crossed with, with uh, no shoes on, no sandals on, 
just barefooted. And um, after the Second World War, many people in Australia were very poor uh, and Australia had made very big sacrifices during the war because we were truly fearful we were going to be invaded and taken over and uh, uh, and that the dream would suddenly finish. And uh, so it was a very frightening time. And um, so that was, that was my schooling and I was encouraged and uh, I did try to do my very best. I'm still trying to do my very best. <laughs> if it hadn't been the law... What else might have, have laid ahead for, for a young Michael Kirby? Did you think of politics, for example? Yes, I did think of politics. I certainly thought of history. I mean, now and even then, if I had time, I would not read law. I would read a history book, a book about history or a biography or something of that kind. And that uh, is still my case. Fortunately, in my case, Jan is very interested in history too and has become very interested in and knowledgeable about British history. Uh, and so we can share a lot of talk about uh, history and in fact we decided about 20 years ago no more television we're going to talk and so when we when when I get home late generally we will talk about something a book he's reading or a book I'm reading or something that is of mutual interest and um, I think that's been a great uh, strength in our relationship of uh, discovering each other by talking to each other and not having information just delivered to us. I, I really think it's a problem with young people today. I get on the first train of the day and I see I'm the only person in the train who's not staring into a cell phone and waiting for information, usually adulation, to be thrown at them. Uh, um, and uh, through the impersonality of text... There's something very impersonal about typing as distinct from a voice and a sound or a song. It's, it's something I'm, I'm glad I didn't have. I had words and the nuances and the interruptions and the pauses and all the other phenomena of human communication as we've known it these past few millennia. You've made a comment recently um, about the difference between when you were a young person getting involved in activism about things that were of concern to your generation and the difference today, you don't seem to see that same passion. Well, that's not by chance, that's by activity. I mean, in my day, we received Commonwealth scholarships. One of the great gifts of Robert Gordon Menzies to Australia built on a scheme devised by the Chifley government. The Menzies government introduced it and uh, my siblings and I got Commonwealth scholarships and that gave us chances that the previous generations had not, not had. But these opportunities were virtually free. But now, as a result of changes to legislation introduced in the 1990s, I think it was, you have to pay to join a student union. And that means it's not part and parcel and indeed a central aspect of your student life. You've got to voluntarily pay. This was so-called voluntarily voluntary unionism. And I can sort of understand the theory behind it, but the net result of it is that participation in things like NUAOS, like the thing that took me over to Perth to a meeting with students from all over Australia and such a wonderful preparation for life, that's not 
so important now and it, you've got to pay out of your own pocket or, or you've got to pay and then it's on your hex and you've got to pay it back. And it, it, it really has reduced the participation of students in the activities that was true of my day. For example, being involved in protests about the Vietnam War. People forget how we were. We were a warrior country. We were fighting in all these wars and the protests about our treatment of Aboriginals and about our racial policy, the white Australia policy. I mean, all of these things in my day were the key issues that students, outside the time they were studying, were concerned about and were speaking about and were uh, organising their student meetings about. And um, I'm just not so sure that today uh, you see the same engagement. And I think a part of that is because of the change in the legislation that makes you have to go voluntarily and join it and then pay it back. And um, there have been some modifications of that law, but it still is not quite as encouraging to student engagement, using their fine young brains to think moral questions, just as we did. I went up to Walgett as a young solicitor with a group of students who had stormed the upstairs section of the Walgett Cinema. That was a section that was forbidden to Aboriginals who made up quite a big part of the town. They could go downstairs. And when they stormed up the stairs, the manager said, no, you can't go in here. You can't come into the, the area where the seats are plush and they're velvet. You can go downstairs where the seats are lino. It's exactly the same film. You can go downstairs, but you can't come up here. And uh, the students barged their way in. They got arrested, and that's why I went up with uh, the, the late, great Gordon Samuels uh, as the QC who was representing the students. But all of this grew out of a sense of engagement. Uh, I think it's a terrible thing if we have university students who are boring and not engaged and thinking only of the bottom dollar. I really think that's going to have a very bad effect in the future and... Uh, and I, I, I hope somehow we've got to encourage kids back into thinking moral questions and asking it of themselves and demanding answers from their society and their leaders. And, and entering into some kind of discourse, I suppose, to challenge and to, to say these are the things we're concerned about. Yes, and uh, so that's what I said. I was told, well, nowadays, you know, they can communicate by their mobile phones and you can have crowdfunding and, and it's true that... You've got to keep pace with the technology and not say, well, it's all got to be exactly the same as it was in my day. But it was a wonderful thing in those days. You know, my colleague on the High Court of Australia, Sir Gerard Brennan, he was elected the president of NUAUS, the National University of Australian University. Gareth Evans, who was my colleague in the Law Reform Commission, was the president of the Melbourne SRC when I was the president of the Sydney SRC. You look at the names of those people who were there, Tony Abbott uh, and Joe Hockey were very big, Julia Gillard. All of these kids were doing an apprenticeship in public discourse and moral questions and social questions and uh, 
and I'm, I don't think it's as easy today and I, I just think that's something they're missing out on but the nation will miss out on it. Maybe part of the disillusionment about our political institutions and political leadership is because of the fact that people are not feeling that there is an engagement with the moral questions and the only engagement is with money. It's with taxes. That's all that that some people want to, especially politicians, want to talk about, the economics of life. Well, economics is very important, no doubt about it, especially if you don't have a job. It's very important. But it's not the only thing. There are great moral questions and they can sometimes be in songs and they can be in cantatas, uh, but they can be in the great song of life and, and young people should be engaging with those songs. Your mention of a song that talks about public concern and concern at the time leads me to think of that great song, Imagine. Uh, which we'll hear next this afternoon, which you've chosen in our, our playlist. At the time it was it was written, there was great concern about the state of the future of the world. Well, I think we've still got, I certainly hope we've still got that. In fact, the, the concern about that should be even greater, and particularly in Australia following the uh, bushfires. Um, mm. I think actually the most important issues in the world are existential issues, survival in the age of nuclear weapons. A survival when we are joined at the hip uh, to the United States of America under the protection of the American nuclear arsenal when they have been involved in so many wars and most of them they've lost in recent times. They, they saved us in Australia during the Second World War, but, you know, they are a very warlike people. And President Eisenhower, who had reason to know because he was a great war leader himself, when he demitted office, he warned the American people about what he called the military-industrial complex. We should study that speech. It's a really important speech. And it's relevant to us at the moment because the United Nations has before it a a treaty to ban the possession, use and threat of use of nuclear weapons. And that treaty grew out of a group of citizens who probably started out as student politicians in Melbourne. And they formed a group called ICANN. It's the International Committee Against Nuclear Weapons. And subsequently, ICANN produced this draft of the treaty that was introduced by the General Assembly of the United Nations. Uh, 123 nations turned up. Very large numbers have signed it. Serious countries uh, have signed it. New Zealand has signed it. Ireland and Austria and uh, other countries have signed it. Thailand, uh, the Philippines and countries in our region have signed it. But uh, though ICANN won the Nobel Prize for Peace for taking this initiative and getting this matter before the international community, they never got any acknowledgement at all, none at all, by the Australian government, where there was not even a little reception in the Great Hall of Parliament. Let them have it in the Albert Hall or some tiny little hall in Melbourne. But there's never been any acknowledgement that this group of citizens from Melbourne won the Nobel Prize for Peace. How many Nobel Prizes for Peace has Australia won? There's only one, and Professor Tillman Ruff has his Nobel Medal 
and he hands it round. When he makes a speech, he hands it round. I've told him to be careful of that in Australia because somebody may just nab it. But it, really, it's graceless that they have not... I could write the minister's speech. We don't happen to agree. We think it's important for us to be supporting the American alliance. It's saved us in time of war. We must continue. But... You know, we've got, we've got to learn lessons from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Iran at the moment, uh, and from Vietnam, and we, we must have our own stance. This is a great moral question. So that's one great moral question. Of course, the others are the moral question about climate change and the moral question about great movements of populations, uh, of endemic poverty in our world. You know, there's plenty for us to talk about and to think about and to sing about. Let's hold some of those thoughts in our mind then as we hear Imagine by John Lennon. You're listening to In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. John Lennon with the unmistakable song Imagine, an anthem, if you will, for time when it was written, but as Michael Kirby, my guest today, has said, a song that continues to resonate today. Uh, you mentioned to me, Michael, that uh, Yoko Ono played a, a significant role in the development of that song. Y you met her, didn't you? Yes. Well, she came to Australia for an exhibition of her works at the Museum of uh, Contemporary Art in Sydney, and I had the, the privilege to meet her and to converse with her and to dine with her and to talk about that song. And uh, it's important that John Lennon later 
had pangs of guilt about it and he said, well, actually, uh, most of the ideas in the song came from Yoko and he insisted that she be given joint credit for it and subsequently whatever they had to do was changed and it's, it's now acknowledged as a song which was written jointly by them and it's a, a song about imagining a world where we don't have nuclear weapons and we don't have all of these fearsome dangers and we've done something about it. I think there's also something in it about a world without religion and that is a condemnation that has sadly been earned by a lot of religionists, but not by the religionists I knew when I was growing up. You know, people say, how can you possibly have anything to do with the Sydney Diocese of the Anglicans? But I grew up with Mr Dillon, and he was a real pastor of the Sydney Diocese. He actually invited to our humble little church Pastor Neomerler, Pastor Neomerler was the famous Lutheran minister of religion in the Nazi period who rebelled against Hitler and took great courage and great risks. Uh, he was the one who wrote that thing. For, first they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew and therefore I did nothing. And, and then they came for the communists, but I was not a communist. And ultimately it said, but then they came for me and... Uh, I had only myself. Uh, and uh, so Neomerla was the sort of religion I got from this Anglican ex-padre, very concerned about war, very concerned about the dangers of war. And, you know, that's the sort of religion of Jesus the revolutionary, as I've always conceived it. So I'm quite happy with uh, my simple Protestant uh, Anglican tradition with stirring hymns. I've noticed, you know, you, you got out the words of that hymn and I haven't really studied them for many years. We got school songs for schools to sing by and that was in, uh, the words were in the song. But I noticed one of the, the verses that was written by Josiah Simon, uh, allegedly uh, a gay man, wrote, Man shall love man with hearts as pure and fervent as the young-eyed joys who chant their heavenly songs before God's faith with undiscordant noise. That mention of God's faith, his face is the only mention of God in the whole text. But the interesting thing is there he slips it in, man shall love man with hearts as pure. Of course, it could have been in the sense that we often use man in the old days as being man and women, but uh, just the same Josiah might have had another meaning when he slipped that, that into it. And in Imagine, it is urging us to think of a world without all the conflict and hatred of each other. And really, this is a very dangerous time, I think, in the world at the moment. And, and it's very important that we should, in Australia, be thinking our own thoughts and dreaming our own dreams of justice New Zealand has signed and ratified the treaty against uh, nuclear weapons. Now, if New Zealand, a strong ally of the United States and a member of the Five Eyes group of uh, those who share the secret intelligence, uh, it hasn't been thrown out of the club. 
but it has its own independent policy. They're a feisty little country, New Zealand, you know, and they've got a very impressive Prime Minister and very impressive leadership, and I think we can learn a few things from our cousins across the Tasman and um, imagine as urging us as Australians to be thinking better than just being joined at the hip. I, I don't like the idea of being joined at the hip with unquestioning obedience uh, of the risks of nuclear weapons which would destroy everything, all the beauties, J.S. Bach, all the paintings, all the spiritual thoughts would all be wiped out and we've got to do something about this. And, and it started in Melbourne. You know, they're very strange people down there in Melbourne. <laughs> they're very serious. And they, they're more serious than we are in Sydney. And they got together as a, just a citizens group and they started ICANN. And they deserve a bottle of Australian champagne, at least, to celebrate their success. You're listening to In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. Songs were important as I was growing up. My father was very into musical comedies. So we got Carousel and we got uh, My Fair Lady and we got Oklahoma and Annie Get Your Gun. But his special love was for Noel Coward. And Noel Coward was a very important part of our growing up and Noel Coward's music was very much the music of the fading days of the British Empire, and uh, it had lots of very beautiful songs. Many of them were very mirthful, and, of course, nowadays some of them sound very dated, a bit classist, but uh, they were making a message uh, about uh, the British Empire that it would pass... Uh, the American empire will pass and all the empires and vanities of the world will pass, but we've got to make sure they pass relatively peacefully and not blasted away with nuclear weapons. One of them was, um, don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs Worthington. Now, this was sort of a song my father used to play to us to remind us, well, you might be a little swat at school and you might be doing very well in your classes, but uh, we're not going to put you on the stage because it can sometimes come a cropper. your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Don't put your daughter on the stage. The profession is overcrowded and the struggle's pretty tough. And admitting the fact she's burning to act, that isn't quite enough. She has nice hands to give the wretched girl her due, but don't you think her bust is too developed for her age? I repeat, Mrs. Worthington, sweet Mrs. Worthington, don't put your daughter on the stage. Regarding your Dear Mrs. Worthington, of Wednesday the 23rd, although your baby may be keen on a stage career, how can I make it clear this is not a good idea for her to hope, dear Mrs. Worthington, is on the face of it absurd. Her personality is not in reality exciting enough, inviting enough for this particular sphere. Don't your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Don't put your daughter on the stage. She's a bit of an ugly duckling, you must honestly confess. And the width of her seat would surely defeat her chances of success. It's a loud voice, 
And though it's not exactly flat, she'll need a little more than that to earn a living wage on my knees, Mrs. Worthington. Please, Mrs. Worthington, don't put your daughter on the stage. Noel Coward himself singing his own composition, Don't Put Your Daughter on the Stage, Mrs Worthington, selected by my special guest today, Michael Kirby. Michael, you've travelled extensively throughout your professional life and since retirement from the High Court you've continued to travel all the time. In fact, I know your passport is sitting on your bedside table ready for a trip tomorrow after this broadcast. Uh, Your love of travel is obviously driven by a love of people, it seems to me. Yes, uh, I I go tomorrow to Berlin for a conference on judicial integrity, which is actually being organised by the German government in Berlin. Now, isn't that an interesting story? And uh, it's a wonderful thing that they've taken the leadership. They know that unless judges are uncorrupted and are doing the job of judges and you can trust them, then you're not going to have a safe trade with one another, something the Germans are always very interested in, but nor are you going to have liberty protected and the right to have discordant views and different points of view. So that will be the first step. And the second step is in Trinity College, Dublin. They're giving me an award with a Latin title, which has previously been won by various worthies, Uh, which my grandfather, who derived from Northern Ireland and his daughters who lived and worked uh, as botanists and portraitists in Dublin, I think they would be proud that that is happening. But then I go to New Delhi for an international arbitration uh, concerning a dispute about um, a contract. And uh, it's a very big, very, very big contract. So... That's that's what I'm up to at the moment, and there are lots of other things, and they're interesting. Uh, my father had all his marbles at the age of 96, and he was ultimately brought low by prostate cancer. My father kept saying to us, I've beaten so many of these uh, problems in my life, I'm going to beat this, but he didn't beat it. Mm. So... Um, that's uh, that's why I try to feel every day with something interesting and something worthwhile. And when I get too big for my boots, my partner, Johan, reminds me, brings me down to earth. And that's a characteristic of the people of the Netherlands. They're very, very blunt. And uh, that's been very good for me too. Well, long may that energy continue to inspire and send you all across the world. Michael, thank you so very much for your time today. It's been a treat to catch up and safe travels to Berlin and beyond. Thank you very much, Christopher. Thanks for listening to In Conversation. This episode originally aired on Fine Music Sydney, 102.5 FM, streaming and DAB+. It was presented by Christopher Waterhouse and produced by Joe Goddard. For more episodes, just head to finemusicsydney.com slash inconversation. conversation.